Bienvenidos, marhaban, and welcome to the Never Never Podcast, exploring the Dresden Files by Jim Butcher. I'm your host, Christine. I'll be releasing multi-chapter analysis episodes for each book, along with bonus topic episodes between books. Here we discuss the series' world-building, overarching plot, foreshadowing, character intros, as well as any meta-aspects, mythology, callbacks to other books, and theory. The Never Never podcast may include spoilers from all sources. The Dresden Files features mature themes, including sexuality and violence. Also, I'm terrible at watching my language, so the Never Never podcast is intended for mature audiences, despite having playful, if not childish, tendencies. Happy Pride, everyone! My peeps, we have gotten over 500 downloads. I never thought I could have come this far, and I couldn't have done it without you. I got a great email after the last episode saying they enjoyed the podcast and thanking me for my good work, which made my week. Um, I'm a dork, and I read the email like five times, and I just couldn't stop smiling. So, special shout out to Dion. I hope I got your name right. But to everyone who was listening, new or from the beginning, everywhere in between, from the bottom of my heart, thank you. I hope I can keep making these episodes entertaining and probing the deeper meaning in one of my favorite book series. Episode 11, Let the Wizardry Commence. Recorded June 7th, 2021, covering Full Moon, Book 2, Chapters 5 through 8. In this episode, Dresden tracks some blood to its source and spies on the Alphas. Billy and Georgia engage in some early flirting. Harry gets jumped by a wolf and then by Murphy. She gets hypocritical, and Dresden convinces her not to arrest the wolfy people until he can find out more. Professor Bob gives a werewolf lesson, Susan looks hot, and the FBI act helpful while actually trying to get him killed. And we get a clue who may have cursed our loop guru's bloodline oh so long ago. So, let's draw our circle and step through the way to the never-never. Chapter 5. Have Chalk, Will Travel. Murphy is counting on Dresden's help. He commences wizardry, first time this book, by chalking a circle around him on the asphalt, closes the circle, touches the blood on the glass to a compass, he mutters a nonsense incantation, and the compass swings from north to southeast. Harry takes off in the blue beetle, headed south until the needle is pointing due east, and then turns and continues on. He's entering a bad neighborhood. Not only is it a high crime area with abandoned buildings and broken streetlights, but, quote, It's always been a favorite haunt for some of the darker things that come crawling out of the never-never for a night on the town. Trolls lurked about like muggers some nights, and any new vampire that came through the city always ended up in this neighborhood, or one like it, searching for prey until he could make contact with Bianca or one of the lesser vampire figures of the city. Unquote. Here the needle swings to an abandoned department store. Harry stops and finds himself on his map of Chicago. The two parks where the killings took place are both less than a mile away. Dresden enters the store carefully, avoiding a trap, showing us more of his street smarts, 
probably learned during his apprenticeship at Ragged Angel. The moonlight through the boarded-up windows gave most of the light. The rest came from the back of the store. Harry closes his eyes and listens. Now, this is the first time we see Harry perform this ability, listening, with a capital L. He can focus and hear things that would otherwise be too quiet or too far away. Nearly every time he uses it, he describes it as a skill, one anyone could learn to do. I think this is horseshit. He's not lying, he just doesn't know. It's part of his lineage, or the timing of his birth, or gifted to him by his fairy godmother, Leah. There are lots of possibilities, but I don't think this is something vanilla people can pick up. It's an innate ability, not a skill. There may be a connection to other characters and their abilities, but that is a far-off pin for many books later. At the back of the store, while hiding behind some empty shelves, he sees a group of young people, dressed in black leather, sporting collars, wrist cuffs, piercings, and a tattoo. But something is off from this hard image. Quote, If they had been tall, muscular folk, they would have looked intimidating. But they weren't. They looked like college students, or younger, some still with acne, or too oily hair, beards that wouldn't quite grow all the way in, and the thinness of youth. They looked awkward and out of place. Unquote. Two small groups of them were clustered each around two individuals, one a short, stout young man, one a tall, willowy woman with a ragged mane of blonde hair. They looked at odds. Billy, he's named, wanted to find them and tear them apart. Georgia, he calls her, reminded him that she told them to stay put. It seems Georgia may challenge Billy for the leadership. Billy calls her a bitch, and Georgia calls him a testosterone-laden idiot and a hapless loser. She's tall and cautious. He's short and brash. It's cute, because knowing what comes later, they are totally into each other and will wind up romantically entwined. Billy calls the group Alphas and asks for their support. This is amusing to me because an Alpha is a singular leader of a group. To call the whole group the Alphas makes as much sense as Bill and Ted calling their band the Lone Rangers. Harry's compass points directly at the Alphas. Harry rebels against the idea that this, quote, group of computer nerds geared up for leather night, unquote, could possibly be the killers. He considers leaving quietly and getting some license plate numbers, even maybe a university parking pass number or two. In walks the dark-complected, well-muscled older woman, with eerie amber eyes and brown hair peppered with gray. It's the woman who was following Harry and Murphy from the crime scene, and then Murphy to wherever she went after she dropped Harry off at his car. She's pissed. She scolds both Billy and Georgia, telling them she was followed here, and that if they are found out, they could be killed for it. Harry looks at his compass again. The needle follows her as she paces back and forth with, quote, animal vitality. Unquote. She's the one whose blood was on the glass at the crime scene. This proves she was there. Damning, but not conclusive evidence. He looks up, and she is staring at the patch of shadows where he stood. She sniffs the air, holding up her hand for quiet. She snuffs out the lantern, plunging them into darkness. Then Harry realizes they are escaping, and he tries to follow. In the darkness, a big furry shape slams into him and knocks his legs out. He falls and cracks the figure with his blasting rod hard. 
In the moment of the creature reeling, Harry gets to his feet, levels his gun on the shadows, and nothing happens. So he gets out his pentacle necklace and whispers power through it so it glows gently. He navigates to the back exit by Werelight. Heh, <laughs> Werelight. When a woman knocks him onto his face. A gun is held against the base of his skull, and the woman, quote, snarled. Drop the gun, or I blow your head off. Unquote. The bestial language is everywhere in this chapter. It describes the alphas and the amber-eyed woman. Even the woman at the end is depicted as snarling, masking the fact that she is not the amber-eyed woman, but actually Murphy. There is much more linguistic deception in this story than in Stormfront, book one. We can see Jim growing in complexity as a writer. Chapter six, people in glass houses. Literally having a gun to his head, Harry drops his gun and follows instructions when he's told to put his hands behind his back. The woman cuffs him and puts her flashlight in his face. Murphy realizes it's Dresden, Dresden realizes it's Murphy, and rolling their eyes at themselves, she uncuffs him. Immediately she gets on his case about following his lead without contacting her. Harry points out, pot, kettle, black? He had to follow the lead, or he'd lose it. Though, I'll point out what neither of them noticed. As the spell is explicitly said to last until sunrise, Harry could very well have cast and then called Murphy with something like, I've got a lead, meet me someplace southeast of him, and then he could have waited for her there, and they could have gone together. Just saying. Murphy explains to Dresden, and to us, that she had followed the car that had followed them. And she must have lost it because it started out following her out of the parking lot, but Jim doesn't tell us. She asks where they went, and Harry tells her they didn't go out the front. But Murphy says they didn't go out the back. They must have gone to the roof and slipped by that way. She goes to find a way up when Harry stops her. Murph, you can't win this. They're too dangerous. What, there's a group of killers now? No, a pack. But these guys aren't killers. They're too soft. Murphy still wants to put an APB out for the woman, and she needs a sketch of the members of the group that Dresden can describe. But he advises not to, because he's convinced they're not the ones responsible for the murders. And while, yes, the woman with the brown mane peppered with gray was at the scene, it was her blood on the glass there. That doesn't mean she was the killer. And starting something with someone from, quote, boogity land, unquote, was no es bueno. That creature could have killed him, but they didn't. Murphy is incredulous. What, you think you can't handle a wolf? Quote. Murphy, it's been nearly a hundred years since the wolf went extinct in most of the United States. You've got no idea, none at all, of how dangerous they can be. A wolf can run faster than you can drive a car through most of Chicago. His jaws can snap your thigh bones with one jerk. A wolf can see the heat of your body in the complete dark and can count the hairs on your head from a hundred yards off by starlight. He can hear your heart beating 30 or 40 yards away, unquote. And I'll add, that impressive CV doesn't even include their sense of smell, which is more than a thousand times better than a human's. And they didn't kill Harry. Even after he hit them, they left. Murphy doesn't want to believe it, and comes up with a flimsy scenario, which doesn't even convince herself. So she, so she agrees to hold off until she gets the report in the morning. He agrees, 
and then Murphy's flashlight falls victim to Harry's wizard tech hex field. Ugh. Chapter 7. Werewolves 101. There are a lot of little quotes from this chapter here, usually included because I couldn't put it any more succinctly than Jim did, but a couple are there just because they're cool. We are reintroduced to Harry's apartment. It's got a heavy steel anti-burglar door after the toad demon kerfuffle, and the interior had been more or less replaced because of the demon's Ridley Scott alien-style acid spit. The apartment is still a parade of rugs and tapestries and mismatched squashy furniture and Star Wars posters. We learn about Harry living without modern appliances and electric lights. We meet Mr. again, about whom Harry says, quote, I eventually came to realize that I was part of his little family, and by his gracious consent was allowed to remain in his apartment. Unquote. Fun fact, we learn that it's precisely October, six months after the spring events of Stormfront Book One. So I looked it up. In the year 2000, the year this book and the last book were set, the first day of the action, including the scenes we're about to discuss, happened to have taken place on Thursday the 12th of October, because the actual full moon that year was on Friday the 13th. Kinda neat. Next, we follow Harry down into his lab, wearing our bathrobes to, quote, let the wizard recommence, unquote. We meet the lab again. Tables, shelves, books, and ingredients everywhere and a copper summoning circle set into the floor. And a little shelf with a romance novel and a skull. Bob's orange eye lights come on. Bob is a lascivious, irascible smartass, as always, implying that breast implants make women unanimously more attractive. Grrr. Harry tuts at Bob's lewdness and then strokes his ego about how much Harry appreciates Bob's perfect memory, hundreds of years of experience, and ability to deduce. This gets Bob's happy cooperation, and they begin on Harry's double agenda. First on the list are two potions to help with the coming shitstorm. An invigorating potion, like, quote, a night's rest in a bottle, unquote. And a potion to make him imperceptible to a werewolf to escape them hunting him. Bob explains that neither of these is entirely possible, there being no substitute for an actual night's sleep, and werewolf senses being too keen to foil entirely. Now here I must apologize yet again for my terrible British accent, but Bob has one, and if I did it without it, as I've said before, my brain would itch. Bob says Harry would need, quote, a greater ring of invisibility, not just a shadow cape or something, unquote but they can make a temporary pick-me-up potion, which will be way more effective than an energy drink, for a limited time. And they can make a blending potion, something which will make Harry inconspicuous enough that he won't be noticed in the first place. Again, the potion ingredients are clever and sometimes impossible. A cock's crow, cheerful music, a dawn sunbeam, among other physical ingredients for the super coffee, and a rustle of wind and elevator music to help the tangibles round out the blending potion. While the concoctions are simmering, Harry commissions a book report from Bob on werewolves in the Dresden verse. And it's a good thing Harry asked, too, because he didn't even know there was more than one kind. We learn about the typical werewolves, who shift their form with magic. Apparently, if they do it themselves, they can go back and forth whenever they want without any terrible side effects. Whereas, if someone else magics them, 
they lose themselves to the new form, eventually annihilating their personality. Transmogrification of others is, unsurprisingly, against one of the laws of magic for that very reason. Those who learn the spell for themselves must learn how to use their new forms, going on four legs instead of two, learning to follow their noses, etc. These creatures can be hurt by normal weapons, no silver bullets required, and do not transmit by bite. Next, there are hexen wolves. These are, generally, vanilla people who use a talisman, usually a wolfskin belt prepared by a demon or sorcerer, to change their form. The belt calls a rage spirit from the never-never to wrap around and protect their human nature. The spirit also allows the person to instinctively use the wolf form. They lose social inhibition and give in to the id. Bob says, quote, A huge wolf with human-level intelligence and animal-level ferocity. Unquote. Scary. Lycanthropes, while they don't change, are born with the ability to channel a rage spirit naturally. They are savage-spirited people who become feral fighters, fearless in combat, as well as possessing an ability to take and heal damage to an inhuman degree. These are reminiscent of the Norse berserkers of history, but with supernatural overlay, as a fantasy story demands. Then there are the last, the most dangerous kind, the loop guru. Which, in French, I'm pretty sure wouldn't have a P sound, but James Marsters pronounces it with a P, so, so will I. We learn they're made by a curse, turning them into a wolf demon at the full moon. These are the ones who look like the giant half-man, half-wolf creatures so often portrayed by modern movies. They are immune to poison and mind magic, and come with supernatural speed, strength, toughness, and healing factor. Just about the only thing that can hurt them is a weapon made with inherited silver. And the curse must be from a powerful source. Quote, like a major heavyweight sorcerer, or a demon lord, or one of the fairy queens. Unquote. Really? A fairy queen, you say? Now which one do you think would do that? Aurora, Titania? Not their style. And who knows if Maeve is strong enough? I'd bet on Mab, wouldn't you? Could also be someone like Merlin or Kemler. You know, we've never met a demon lord, and I'm supremely ambivalent as to whether or not I want us to. Though, you know, angels, so they could exist. And if I am just not remembering an answer that was given to us at the end, just let me know in the comments or at me or whatever. Anyway, Harry doesn't have to worry about a loop guru because they're super rare and there'd be like a dozen people mauled to death every full moon. Why? What's the case? Oh, you know, a dozen or so people are being killed on the full moon. Harry sends Bob on a recon mission for current intel on werewolves and promises him new romance novels. Good ones, not the pulp kind. Harry reflects on his sticky situation, as he is wont to do. Murphy is in hot water with the police, and so is he, if he fails. The FBI have cut them out of the loop. <laughs> loop. The werewolf killer might come after him if it's known Harry is working the case and might also be a loop guru. And with victims in his sphere, it's only a matter of time before Marcone shows up. That's a lot to be worried about. Fuckedness? 5 out of 10. We interrupt this episode to bring you a short book report on the history of werewolf legends. So this seemed fascinating. I wanted to find out where it all came from in our world, and since I had so much fun with the Mythology of Mab bonus episode, and since it was topically relevant, I decided to do another little research project. 
So there's a wealth of information on the interwebs, enough to do a thesis, no doubt, but this will just be a short little bit on where Jim's ideas probably came from, the best bits, if you will. Legends of werewolves come from the Indo-European culture, roughly 10,000 years ago, at the earliest. As they are spread throughout a large swath of regions and cultures, which originate from the Indo-European culture. Even the words are similar throughout most of the samples, stemming from the Indo-European spoken language. Really quickly, if you've not heard of the Indo-European culture or language, the idea is that anthropologists see a connection between many linguistic roots and cultural concepts and legends. Words like water and mother, as well as stories like the flood myth, have ubiquitous similarity through many traditions. This has led to the hypothesis that there was a culture and language in late prehistory which spread over most of Western Eurasia, a culture which seeded many common words, myths, and practices throughout the Western world. So, were-creatures are common legends, even in non-Indo-European cultures. Turkic shamans from Central Asia were thought to transform into wolves, though as the wolf was a revered totem of the Turkic people, they were respected rather than simply feared. In other places where wolves did not range, there were still tales of animal-shifting humans. There were were-tigers in India, were-leopards in East Asia, were-hyenas in Africa, and even were-pumas and were-jaguars in Central and South America. Greek has many non-Indo-European words, and this is one of them, but it holds to the general meaning of the universal story. In ancient Greece, the lycanthrope, that's lycos, wolf, and anthropos, human, was a member of the Neuri, a tribe in Scythia, which, according to legend, transformed into wolves for several days once a year. Later, in classical Greece, lycanthropy came to refer to the bestial initiation of warriors. They symbolically wore wolf skins in a ceremony, as depicted on pottery from the time. So remember the beginning of 300, when teenage Leonidas wore the wolf skin at the end of his time in the Agogi? That was apparently a real thing. There's also a story of Zeus changing a king into a wolf as punishment for different types of human sacrifice. Or perhaps it was just the wrong ways to perform human sacrifice. This evolved into a story about how one could use this child sacrifice as a recipe to turn into a wolf. Well, that's kind of icky. Regardless, the dual ideas of transformation and wolf's soul in a human body are throughout the Greek culture's history. In Roman times, it became spells of herbs and poisons to transform oneself into a wolf. The word werewolf, from were meaning man, and wolf meaning wolf, comes from Old English, but you can see it in its precursors and their contemporaries. In the Old Pagan Slavic, vlodlak, Germanic, Werwolf, and Nordic culture, Varlfur. The idea of a man transforming into a wolf was predominant throughout the more common rural peoples. In the Norse tradition, this belief in the shapeshifter variety was considered to be particularly provincial and superstitious. The Norse warrior elite held with the Ulfhaven, which sounds a little like wolf-human. They were, essentially, the berserkers, men who channeled a wolf's animal spirit to become ferocious and lose all fear and inhibition in war. It is unclear where or when the origin of the full moon aspect of the condition took hold, but during the early medieval Christianization of Europe, every iteration out there began being associated with the devil. 
either a spell or a curse from a witch or devil worshipper, the werewolf being the devil worshipper, or demonic possession. These were likely regional differences which reflected the idiosyncrasies of local culture. As early as the 4th century, the Catholic Church had written doctrinal text on witches, magic, and transformations like werewolves, branding all as infidels. Afterward, priests would preach from this doctrine, mentioning werewolves in the occasional sermon. By the 12th century, church elders flipped to write of transformation being impossible and went back to the belief in wolves' souls in the bodies of humans. And later Norse culture continued practicing the traditions of the berserkers, associating them with Odin even after Christianity took over in the rest of Europe. Most of late medieval werewolf stories seem to be of this type, though there were some regions where this was not the case, and there were still the occasional king or nobleman who was purported to change forms. Beginning in the 15th century with the early modern period, Germany and France and most of Western Europe flopped to werewolves again changing form and were often burned at the stake alongside witches and other heretics. France is where the term loup guru, or wolf-changing man, came from. Meanwhile, in Slavic Eastern Europe, werewolves became associated with vampires, and being able to turn into a wolf was just another ability possessed by these revenants. In the mid-17th century, a Swiss pastor wrote that physical transformation was an illusion, and within just a few years, belief in physical lycanthropy had disappeared from the French-speaking world and became a disorder of the brain. But in Germanic Europe, as late as 1853, werewolves were condemned to die following strings of murders that were perhaps a combination of real wolf attacks and the work of early serial killers. Wolves attacked people regularly until the 20th century, and they were feared as the top predator in Europe. We now return you to your regularly scheduled episode. Chapter 8. The Helpful FBI Dresden goes to the stalwart-looking police station to see Murphy. It's discomforting to him to see the usually jovial attitude of the cops there turn so sour. But that's what happens when the law thinks you're working for the mob and still come into their house to do business. Susan, the reporter Harry dates, is there unexpectedly. She's dressed for work and flirts with him. Here I've heard it said that Jim goes a little male gazy, lines like, quote, she paused, drawing in a little breath. It made her chest rise and fall most attractively, unquote. And to that I say unfair. They are dating, like sleeping together. He's allowed to appreciate her in his head as much as he likes. She tries to seduce his case out of him, but with effort he resists. They have an agreement that while out together or in together, they won't get into each other's business. And they're not out or in, but Harry still can't talk about it. I love her little pout, too. She's disappointed, but no offense taken. She wants to go out again soon. She does try for help with her story again, asking for just a place to stand with a camera that may produce a good shot or two. Harry tries to tell Susan she can't photograph anything really supernatural because the field of magic will hex the camera or interfere with the film. She suggests, smart as a whip, that she could use a telephoto lens. She says she watches the morgues and knows about the ruined bodies. And Harry says again that he won't tell her anything. Then in true form from episode 10, he tells her his withholding is for her own good. Ugh, really? Well, he's self-aware enough to recognize it, and he's being consistent. 
He just hasn't yet suffered a consequence big enough to figure it out. But don't worry, he will. Oh yes, he will. Harry, stop assuming you know everything, or even know best. You know, give people the information they need to decide what is good for themselves. Agent Denton comes out of Murphy's office and prevents Dresden from going in. Now is not the best time, Denton explains, putting a hand on his chest. IA is in there with her, and he was already pissed from some reporter bothering him. Eesh, Susan. Denton says he believes Murphy to be a good cop, disagreeing with her enemies on the force who thinks she may be dirty. He offers to take the report into her, and Harry can call her from down the hall. That way, the IA dude won't start asking Harry questions. Harry thanks him and hands him the file. Denton asks to look at it, and Harry figures, why not? He won't believe it anyway. Denton peruses and scoffs, having told Dresden he's either a loony, <laughs> derived from Luna, the Roman goddess of the moon, or he's a, quote, very intelligent charlatan, unquote. Harry shrugs. Why should he care what Denton thinks? Dresden then asks if they're on the same team. What isn't he telling Harry? Denton says pointedly that he's got no idea what Dresden is talking about. Got it? Harry nods to mask his cluelessness. He couldn't read Denton at all. Denton goes and gives Murphy the file, and Harry goes down the hall to call Murphy. Dresden explains Denton is giving her the werewolf file, and to hang in there. She responds neutrally, professionally, not giving away to whom she's talking, and hangs up. Then we get another example of Harry's unrecognized love for Murphy. The fact that they aren't talking casually, bantering, stopping in on one another outside of work, it bothers him. He says it makes him tense, even queasy. You don't feel like that when someone won't talk to you unless you really, really care about them. Once in his car, the ginger FBI agent, Roger Harris, approaches and asks to hire Dresden for the price of Harry's FBI file. Raj wants him to go down and check out a gang, the Street Wolves, he says he can't get surveillance on. This is true, because they have nothing to do with the murders, of course. Harry doesn't know this, however, and the gang's turf is between the parks and the university where the bodies were found, so he accepts the extremely dangerous job. Going alone to ask a biker gang if they committed a bunch of murders. Quote, what could possibly go wrong? Unquote. This was a short one, even though we did four chapters. Most of it was rehashing. Most of it was rehashing. Reintroductions, more on mistrust and lack of communication, and Harry accepting dangerous challenges because he's fucked. I wonder sometimes what part of his past pushes him to do this white knighting all the time. It can't all be simply a woman asked me to. I mean, this time, I think, it is his realization that Murphy is about to lose her career, which means the world to her. It's a huge part of her identity, and he's suffered and lost everything in his childhood that mattered to him. He won't stand by and let that happen to someone he cares for, even if he doesn't realize that he's already in love with her. And that's it. Arigato. Dankeschön. And thank you all kindly for listening. I've been your host, Christine. Thank you to Kevin McLeod for providing the music for this episode. Links below. Thank you to my supporters, without whom this project would not be possible. You know who you are. 
thank you to my inspirations, those literary podcast giants on whose mighty shoulders I attempt to balance. And thanks to Jim Butcher for creating such a thrilling and insightful series, up about which I simply cannot shut. The Never Never Podcast is hosted on Podbean and is also available on your favorite podcatcher. If you enjoyed this program, take 30 seconds or less and help the podcast grow. Subscribe, share, like, comment. Leave an iTunes review. Send me your feedback. Email me at theneverneverpodcast at gmail.com. Or follow me on Twitter, at neverneverpod. I'm on there a fair amount. You have my consent to flirt with my algorithms and to spank all the buttons. My peeps, love everyone as though they were you. Take care.